Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. We are in Season 5, Episode 11. It's going to be titled Marriage and Singleness, Part 1, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 25 to 35. Before we get into that, I just want to give a shout out to Julie, who is our newest supporter for Gospel Wabi Sabi. Very much appreciate all the folks who have been helping me out here. Uh, please make sure you send me your email address if you become a supporter. It's one weakness of the Spotify program is that they don't give me any information about people who sign up to be supporters. I don't know why, but they don't. So if you can send me your email address, I will include you on my weekly email that goes to supporters. And you can contact me through my website, jeffebert.com. Thanks so much. Today we turn our attention to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, and the Apostle Paul is writing to this struggling group of Christ followers because they were trying to figure out how to live this new life in Christ in the middle of a wild and crazy, literally anything goes, highly sexualized atmosphere of the ancient Roman Empire. We're going to spend at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, on chapter seven because it is so full of information. This week we're going to focus in on singleness, but next week will be like a mini marriage uh, seminar. So I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 8, and then skipping down to verses 25 to 35. It's a little long, so please bear with me. Now, for the matters you wrote about, and then he makes a quotation, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, dropping down now to verse 25. Now about young women who are not yet married. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a young woman marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. 
I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. When I was a freshman in college, I was driving back to campus in my old 1962 Belvedere station wagon, packed with like seven or eight of my fraternity brothers. And I mean, this car was as big as a boat, solid steel, had that fold-up backwards-facing seat in the rear. And so we were driving on this two-lane country road in southern Indiana. There was a drainage ditch and cornfields on one side of the road and a narrow shoulder on the other. I was going the speed limit. There wasn't much traffic. But an early morning thunderstorm had left the road wet and covered with lots of puddles. So up ahead I saw a big puddle over the whole road, thought of nothing of it, until wham, I hit that thing, and it wasn't a puddle at all. It was like the mother of all potholes. The rain had washed out a huge hole in the road and filled it to the brim with water so that you couldn't tell that it was a hole. My front tire hit that hole full speed. The car swerved violently to the right headed right straight across the ditch. Instinctively, of course, I jerked the wheel to the left to keep the car on the road as we skidded. But when the tires hit drive pavement, the car spun the opposite way, and we went sliding sideways down the road right into oncoming traffic. I mean, I vividly remember seeing cars going to the left and to the right of us. It was only through God's protection that we spun around and stopped safely on the opposite side of the road. You see, I'd made a common mistake when you're in a skid. I overcorrected. I overcorrected. In life, when faced with a big problem, there's a tendency to overcorrect. We go too far in the opposite direction and end up creating even more problems. We overcorrect. And that's what we see happening in today's passage. The Corinthians were overcorrecting. Paul is responding to specific questions that the Corinthian Christians had sent to him. Questions that showed their confusion about how to live for Christ. We've already seen in the first six chapters that problems of sexuality threatened to ruin this church. And in response to these struggles, some Corinthian believers were trying to do the right thing, but they overcorrected. In an attempt to deal with problems of extreme sexual immorality, they let the pendulum swing all the way to the other extreme. They began to believe and teach that anything related to the body was unholy. And therefore, all sex was evil, profane or dirty, shameful, even within marriage. Now, this subgroup taught that true Christians could only be concerned, should only be concerned with spiritual things. Physical desires or physical pleasures of any kind were earthly and therefore should be avoided at all costs. Christians, they said, should be detached from the physical world and be strictly devoted to the spiritual world. Verse 1 says, Now about the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's very important to see that here Paul is quoting their question. He's not making a statement for himself. It's like how students might formulate an issue in a debate class. Paul states the question, resolved, it is good for a man not to marry. One side would then debate in favor of that statement, and the other side would debate against it. 
That's the issue, not Paul's solution. Too many people go way off track on marriage and sexuality at this point because they think that's Paul's opinion. It's not. He's just stating the issue at hand. So one vocal group was saying that anything physical was second rate, that sex, even in marriage, was not the best, and that if you really wanted to please God, you had to remain single. They elevated celibacy as a virtue even above marriage because they thought the physical side of life was shameful or unclean. Unfortunately, that attitude has hounded the church for centuries, especially within the Roman Catholic Church. It's one of the main differences between Protestants and Roman Catholic clergy. Protestant clergy can marry, and we don't view celibacy as a greater virtue than marriage. In this passage, Paul attempts to correct their confusion and is calling for a balance in life. Balance, so important. He wants people to find contentment and purpose, whether they're married or single. Let me say that again. He wants people to find their contentment and purpose, whether they're married or single. The key phrase in this whole chapter is in verse 7, where he summarizes his argument by simply saying, each of you has your own gift from God. Whether you're married or single, both situations are equally, and listen to that, equally a gift from God. One way to help us understand what's going on here is to remember that the Greek language had a wider variety of words to describe things like love. There were four main Greek words that we might translate as love, and each would describe a different aspect of human bonding. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, I'd highly recommend it because he fully explains the meaning and the interplay of these four words. But quickly, the first kind of love is agape, which is the highest kind of love, selfless, unconditional. It's sacrificial love. Agape is the kind of love God has for us, the kind of love Christ demonstrated for us when he died on the cross. It's the way Christ loves his church, and that's why relationships between Christ and the church is often described in Scripture as a marriage, with Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. Ideally, marriage is to mirror this kind of agape love between Christ and the church. The second word for love is philia, which simply means friendship, the powerful bond between close friends. That's why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. That's what it names means. Philia equals love. Adelphos is brothers. Philia is friendship. Not just casual friendships, but the heart and soul kind of friendships that are established over many years. A third kind of love is eros, which means romantic or physical love. It's the root for the English word erotic. But eros isn't strictly just physical passion. It's the whole feeling of romance and attraction. C.S. Lewis notes that there's a difference between the world's view of eros and the Christian view. He describes it as the distinction between wanting a woman and wanting one particular woman. Godly eros is a good thing. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to godly, positive, physical intimacy called the Song of Solomon. Of course, eros is easily distorted, but the physical side of married love is part of God's good creation. The fourth kind of love is storge, which is family love. These are the relationships you don't choose. You don't choose your parents, your cousins, your siblings. Storge is the bond of affection that exists in healthy families. It's that intimate circle of family that often forms our core identity and sets us on a path in exploring the three other kinds of love. Storge sets the tone for how we form friendships, how we pursue romance, 
and especially our ability to love unconditionally, agape style. The problem this group of Christians had was with eros. They couldn't see how romance and passion fit into their narrow view of godly relationships, so they thought it had to be eliminated, even between couples that were already married. Now, Paul fights against that right away. In verses 3 through 5, Paul tells the Corinthians that they are wrong to withhold physical intimacy within marriage as though that was a more spiritual way to live. That is not God's plan, and it's not smart. And that is going to do, all that's going to do is amp up alienation between the husband and wife and open the door to temptation and to the breakdown of the relationship. Mutual intimacy is what marriage is all about. Paul's message is very clear to married couples. Don't deprive each other of physical intimacy. There may be times to refrain, but only with two conditions, he says. It must be by mutual consent, and it must be for only a short time. Well, let's fast forward to today. Our problem is actually the total opposite of what Paul was facing. Today, our culture would say, you can't live without eros. That sexual expression isn't just your right, but there's something wrong with you if you're not sleeping around. And if you restrict eros to the context of one man and one woman uh, in marriage, that's repressive and restrictive. Single people, people who are separated from their spouse, everyone should be free to engage physically with others because, hey, that's the way God made you. God gave you those impulses, so they must be okay. Even in the Christian world, we hear this type of illogic, that people should be free to indulge in whatever relationships they like, as long as there is some feeling of love, however faint, behind it. As long as the sex is consensual, go for it. No harm, no foul. So the pendulum has swung all the way back again. From the Corinthian, Corinthian open sex society to the confused Christians who said no sex at all, even in marriage, to today when people, even in the church, say there's something wrong with you if you're not engaged in eros, regardless of your marital status. We have completely lost all sense of what it means to be single and celibate. Paul sees a special value in singleness and celibacy. First, Paul and his contemporaries all believed that Jesus was coming again very quickly. They expected that the second coming of Christ was right around the corner. So they had a real sense of urgency in spreading the gospel. Persecution was already happening. Small-scale regional persecutions had mushroomed into an empire-wide persecution under the Emperor Nero. So Christians thought the end was just around the corner. They were not thinking about raising families or building better communities or worrying about the kind of legacy they would leave to their grandchildren. In verse 26, Paul explains his feelings with this caveat. Because of the present crisis... I think that it is good for you to remain as you are because of the crisis, because of the persecution, because Jesus is coming quickly. Put a freeze on everything except telling people about Jesus. Stay in your same condition. If you're single, don't seek marriage. If you're married, don't seek to get out of the marriage. Stay as you are so you can focus your attention on the things of the Lord. John Calvin writes about this passage. When high seas are raging, it's no time to be changing ships. Paul prefers singleness so they can give unencumbered, they can be unencumbered and give full concentration to proclaiming the gospel. Paul believed that for him it was best to be single. You see, Paul was married at some time. Before his conversion, remember to Christ, Paul was an Orthodox Jewish Pharisee, and one of the requirements to be a Pharisee was you had to be married. But now he's single. He could be a widower 
or his Jewish wife may have left him when he was converted to Christ, we don't know. But Paul is now a single man, and in his position as an apostle who traveled all the time, it would have been almost impossible to maintain a healthy marriage. But though he was single, Paul always maintained a very positive and high view of marriage. He wrote to his young disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, through The Spirit clearly says that in lighter times some will abandon the faith, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You see, Paul strongly states that marriage should not be forbidden or restricted. But as a single man, he sees his singleness as an asset, not a liability. There are advantages to being unencumbered. It frees the single person to explore all that God has for them right now. Paul would say if you're single, you shouldn't be pining away about getting married at some future time because you might be missing all the ways God wants to be at work in your life right now. Paul's advice is to live your life. Live your life to the fullest right now with God. See how God wants to use you right now. Make that your focus. And if marriage is part of his plan for you, it'll happen. Dr. Preston Sprinkle writes that the church can be a tough place for single people. Most Christians don't realize it unless they're single. But if you step back and look at our Christian culture, you'll see that we often do elevate marriage above all things. In some cases, churches idolize marriage. The not-so-subtle message communicated by many churches is that if you're single, there must be something wrong with you, that you should be married by now. The message is actually unintended, but single people hear it loud and clear. You're incomplete until you get married and have at least 2.5 kids. But if you have any more than four kids, then people think you're weird again. The fact is, marriage is a small blip in our existence. We were all born single. Called to steward our singleness for the first 20, 30, or more years of our life, many people will be called out of singleness and into marriage, and then called to steward their marriage to the glory of God. But as married folks, we'll be single again in this life, whether through divorce or the death of our spouse, and then we'll spend eternity with God as single persons once again, because Jesus told us there is no marriage in heaven. Some Christians have bought into the cultural narrative that you can't really thrive unless you're married and having lots of sex. The Bible doesn't teach this. People can live without sex, but we can't live without love and intimacy. And there's a difference. Human flourishing doesn't depend on marriage, and it certainly doesn't depend on sex. Marriage brings with it its own temptations and trials, frustrations, and other problems that um, unmarried people or married people don't often want to admit. To think that marriage will end your loneliness and take care of your sexual frustrations or life problems, folks, that's a myth. Many married people wish they weren't. And most of the people who struggle with sexual addictions or compulsive online habits, they're actually married. The fact is that we are all relationally and sexually messed up, and marriage or no marriage can't automatically fix that. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus, the one who was single and the embodiment of human flourishing and joy. Owen Strachan writes, 
that we need to see singleness as a gift from God and reject the idea that somehow being single means you're consigned to a life without joy or without companionship, without happiness. It's true that singleness and celibacy is a difficult road, but being married is also a tough road. The good news is that Christ doesn't just minister to us poor sinners, he sets an example for us. The argument that biblically faithful Christian singles somehow lead a substandard existence denies Christ's own model in his own life. Jesus did not marry. Jesus did not father children. Jesus lay by himself at night. He had no anniversaries to remember. If ever a single person feels strange for being unmarried, they should know that Jesus lived that same life. The life of Christ was not easy, but he was the most fulfilled person who ever lived. He created a close circle of disciples. He poured out his life for the needy and the desperate. He had deep friends. By his blood, he created a forever family, the church, so that all could come to him for salvation and never walk alone. They join a community that stretches across every barrier. Jesus knew storge, family love. He knew philia, the love of good friends. And he knew agape, the unconditional love of God. Jesus, a single heterosexual man, tasted the greatest love that there is, the love of the Father. And that was more than enough. If Jesus, the Son of God, could live all his days as this kind of single person, we know that such a life must indeed be blessed. Now, if you'd like to explore more about the sexuality of Jesus, I'd encourage you to read a book called Flesh and Blood Jesus by Dan Russ. Dan was actually an early mentor in Christ in my life, and his book is really one of the only ones that I've ever seen that talks frankly about the sexual temptations and the sexual uh, existence that Jesus uh, would have had to undergo in his life. Paul says, Each of you has your own gift from God. Whether married or single, live fully into the gift God has given you. Pursue all that Christ has for you right now. If you're married, make your marriage the best it can possibly be. But if you're single, can you thank God for your present singleness and get in step with how Christ wants to shine a life, uh, shine through your life right now? Hey, have a great week. We'll continue with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the next episode. Take care.